and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are talking about the crisis in the Eastern Mediterranean. Last week ECFR organised a discussion with the spokesperson and advisor to President Erdogan, Ibrahim Kalin, and maybe in order to set the tone for this, we should start with some sound bites from that discussion. As a NATO member, Turkey uh, plays a stabilizing role for the peace, uh, security, and prosperity of the Eastern Mediterranean. Sometimes I hear rather unfairly that Turkey is acting unilaterally, aggressively. You put it more mildly when you said assertively or Turkey's assertive policy. But to be fair, it was not Turkey that began uh, giving licenses in either uh, the eastern Mediterranean or around uh, Cyprus. The whole idea behind all this is uh, for EU to be an honest broker here. That is, if you are going to deal with issues between Turkey and Greece, that must be done on the basis of uh, equality, fairness, transparency. A union is more than a sum total uh, of its members. And the interests of a union must be also more than a sum total uh, of the interests of its members. EU should have a wider perspective and it should not uh, be hostage to uh, the interests or perspective of one or two member states out of uh, 27, 28 or nine countries. And this, we hope, uh, will no longer be the issue uh, here. That is, as we move forward now for further negotiations, EU sanctions, EU identity, the EU bloc, the EU front should not be presented as a source of pressure or blackmailing against Turkey. It will not work. And uh, as I said, it damages EU's position as an honest broker. I'm really happy to have an all-star cast to help us make sense of this situation. First up is ECFR's resident Turkey expert, Asla Aydin Tashbash, who is joining us from Istanbul. Also on the line, we have the head of our Paris office, Tara Varma. And from Athens, we have Lukas Soukalis, who is an ECFR council member. He's professor at the University of Athens and also the president of the top think tank in Greece, Elia Mep, which is also one of the top think tanks in Europe. So thank you very much to all of you for joining. Asa, maybe we can turn to you just to give us a quick overview of the situation in the Eastern Mediterranean and, and some of the big things that seem to have been happening in the, in the last few days. Hi, Mark. So we have been quite focused on this conflict for since the beginning of this year. It was clear that things were moving in the wrong direction. This obviously is an old conflict, age-old conflict, with Cyprus issue on one side and the Turkish-Greek tensions that uh, have been around for decades. What's different now is that there's no EU process to de-escalate between Turkey and Greece. In some sense, that meant that that freeze in in the bilateral issues. And in fact, it was quite a pleasant climate from uh, late 90s until recently. And then you have the discovery of hydrocarbons off uh, Cyprus in eastern Mediterranean. With a conflict in Cyprus that is still not fully settled, Cyprus, an EU member, and on top, regional fault lines in the Middle East being 
in some sense, reflected on Eastern Mediterranean with UAE taking a very active stance, UAE being sort of Turkey's at this point geopolitical rival, and uh, a new pipeline that Egypt, Cyprus, Greece, and Israel have led, gas pipeline that excludes Turkey. All of these things created an explosive situation. And this summer was not really easy with various frigates staring each other, other down, Turkey sending exploration vessels in territory that Cyprus considers its economic, exclusive economic zone. Lots of debate within EU, but also uh, fear of a kinetic confrontation between Turkey and uh, Greece, uh, certainly, but also with French so involved backing up uh, Cyprus and Greece and emphasizing EU solidarity. For a number of weeks this summer, particularly in August, people actually thought there could be an incident. Uh, We have now a situation in which Germany is very much involved. Uh, Chancellor Merkel herself is very involved in de-escalation, in playing a mediation role. This is, of course, a role traditionally Americans played, particularly in the Mediterranean, but in, but there's a marked absence, I think, of U.S. leadership or, or, or even a presence to the extent that they have been presence. We can talk about it later, but they've made things worse, I think. But Merkel has really been doing a shuttle diplomacy, or that is to say telephone diplomacy or video conference. She hasn't actually been physically shuttling. And you know, basically, Germany and, and the European Union has managed to convince Turkey and Greece to return to this uh, concept called exploratory talks that ran for 15 years. This, these are talks. They've had 60 rounds of talks whereby they talk about their problems, uh, legal disputes, In the Aegean, these disputes largely stem from having Greek islands that are very, very close to the Turkish mainland and, you know, their debates about their maritime borders, etc. But the start, yesterday's announcement that the Turkey and Greece will return to exploratory talks is a huge win for European diplomacy. Erdogan had a a video conference with Merkel and EU President Charles Michel yesterday. And uh, following that, a surprising phone call with Macron. I say surprising, of course, because Turkish-French tensions have been so high, but not just that. Erdogan and Macron have basically been involved in a in a diplomatic spat for, for weeks now. And uh, I'll end here, but there is a process that started also within NATO, in part thanks to EU pushing it. And I think we have the postponement of the Council's special session on East Med tensions, where there was talk of sanctions on Turkey. But the fact that it's postponed now because of coronavirus is, again, leaving something that leaves room for de-escalation. Okay, so I'd like to come back to you a bit later on to, to talk a bit more about the Turkish position and how Turkey sees things. Um, but before we do that, maybe we can look at, at some of the other positions within the EU and go to the Greek side of things. Ibrahim Kalin, in our call, talked about how Turkey uh, was always ready to restart the so-called exploratory talks. Asta just told us that they're starting again. And what will be interesting to know, Lucas, is what the, the Greek side hopes to achieve with these exploratory talks. How uh, do the kind of different tension points look from, from Athens' perspective? Mark, thank you very much for inviting me to join this discussion. 
I did indeed listen to Ibrahim Kalim, which was very interesting. Uh, he's a sophisticated, moderate, and knowledgeable. But he's one side of the face that Turkey or the present regime in Turkey presents itself to the rest of the world. This is the moderate, considerate side. There is another side as well, and this is the problem. The language coming from Turkish officials all the way down from the president to the prime minister and a number of ministers has really gone beyond the limit in recent months. The expressions used, the threats used, are things that we're not used to in conversation, in dialogue, in negotiations between civilized countries. And this is a company, it's not only language, but it is accompanied by direct threats. So we've been witnessing a very large number of violations of Greek airspace, of Turkish planes overflying Greek islands, of Turkish frigates going into zones that with You know, I can say that there are zones, maritime zones, that are claimed by both Greece and Turkey. So Turkey giving the impression that she decides on her own what is right and what is wrong, what is hers and what belongs to other people. So Greece is in favor of negotiations. And I think we should, I mean, dialogue should be the way to deal with bilateral problems between neighbors. But if dialogue is accompanied with threats, if you are invited to join a table of negotiation and the other side puts a revolver on the table and very often actually points the revolver at your head, then this dialogue becomes very problematic. And this is really what worries me because that is, there are two different kinds of language emanating from Ankara. One calls interested parties to join a discussion and find equitable solutions to problems that are real. And there's the other side that threatens everybody, everybody who is not prepared to toe the line. So I wonder which one of the two one should pay attention to. And perhaps if I may add something else, and this is about the stakes. What is really at stake in ISNED? As Lee talked about the discovery of gas, in Eastern Mediterranean, the Israelis are found, the Egyptians are found, the Cypriots are found in their own maritime zones. But we have to bear in mind that with today's prices for gas, any gas that can be found or will be found, may potentially be found in Eastern Mediterranean, is not economically viable in the foreseeable future. And we also have to bear in mind that the time horizon within which any country, Turkey, Greece, Cyprus, whoever, can exploit this gas is also very limited because of the green transition. So I have a feeling that, or a suspicion, that all interested parties are fighting about something, the importance of which they've all tend to exaggerate enormously. One is that the economic stakes are limited. Now, if we move on to the political stakes, then this is different. So it's all about geopolitics. It's all about who controls what. And there brings me back to the discussion about what kind of dialogue we want. I think, and I'm not expressing, I'm not representing an official Greek point of view, but I think all reasonable Greeks should be, and I think are, in favor 
of dialogue leading to negotiations and eventually leading to international arbitration. Because there may be things that would be difficult for both sides to accept because concessions to the other side would be difficult to sell to the domestic public opinion. So the best way where we can we should discuss, we should negotiate, and if there are things that are left unresolved, we should both agree to go to the International Court of Justice about the limitation of maritime zones or whatever. Now, there, the extra problem I have is that Turkey is one of the very few countries that refuses to sign the International Convention on the Law of the Seas. So if you combine that with assorted threats, then you begin to wonder what kind of an interlocutor you're likely to have. And I would stop there for the time being. Lucas, before we go to Paris and hear from Daha about the French view of the crisis, because as Asla said, President Macron's been a very active participant in the debates and actions in recent weeks. Can you tell us a bit more about the Cypriot question and how that is likely to, to be resolved? Because one of the things which has been very striking about the crisis is how it has become entangled with other issues. And the Cypriots have been blocking uh, the EU's attempts to introduce sanctions on Belarus, which is a completely unrelated question in most people's minds, until the EU agrees to, to impose sanctions on Turkey. Can you talk a bit more about that? Do you think it's going to be successful? How do you think that's going to get resolved? I have no doubt at all that as long as the Cyprus issue remains unresolved, any serious improvement of Greek-Turkish relations will be difficult at best because uh, an unresolved Cyprus problem hangs, you know, it's like a Damocles sword or even worse. I'm not sure about which ancient Greek expression I should use, but it's a serious problem that affects bilateral relations. And I really feel sad that after so many years, a solution has not been found, and I will be fair. I'm not implying here that the responsibility for failure to resolve the Cyprus issue lies only with one side. And this is in itself an important concession. Okay? So there are problems and responsibilities on both sides of the island and on other interested parties. Cyprus now, I mean, the Republic of Cyprus is, from what I understand and read, is vetoing sanctions on Belarus as long as there are no sanctions on Turkey. I think sanctions should be an ultimate weapon that will be used only as a weapon of last resort. So the emphasis for the time being should be on negotiations. So let's give negotiations a chance and leave sanctions for the time being. But do you think that Cyprus is going to climb down on that demand? Oh, I cannot really tell you. My guess is that if negotiations begin between Greece and Turkey, and given the atmosphere, the climate prevailing inside the European Council, uh, there will be a compromise. Okay, Zaha, 
what's the French view of the crisis? Um, Dr. Cullen said that France has issues with Turkey and tries to use the crisis in the East Med to fuel anti-Turkish sentiments. At the same time, the, the French have got quite a different narrative on it. And, and President Macron's been calling for a Pax Mediterranea. What are the stakes from a French perspective on this? How do they see the situation at the moment? Hi, Mark. Hi, everyone. It's great to be back on the podcast. Um, you are right. The French narrative is, is quite different. For the French, this has been uh, lasting for a long time, but clearly there was an escalation in June when a Turkish warship illuminated French frigate Courbet with targeting radar. And the fact that there was uh, close to no reaction from NATO allies really left the French dismayed or even flabbergasted. They were quite worried that there was no no reaction at all. And they started saying that they felt that their allies were, were burying their heads in the sand when it came to the place of Turkey in, inside NATO. But during the summer, you could see that Macron tried to call twice for some sort of a de-escalation. He did so at some point at the Middle Eastern Mediterranean summit. And he called there for the creation of a Pax Mediterranean that would be built around energy topics and new grounds for political cooperation and governance in the region. And he called for this Pax Mediterranean again during the Med 7 summit that took place earlier in, in September. What is important for France now is to try and uh, de-bilateralize the relationship. They, the French keep saying that they don't want this to be a, a French-Turkish issue. They want to Europeanize it as much as possible. The idea for them is to try and get Cyprus to maybe be more flexible and to not link the sanctions on Belarus to sanctions on Turkey. And French European Affairs Minister Clément Boone was in Cyprus and in Greece earlier this weekend. He tried to push for this as much as possible. He repeated this in an interview that he gave yesterday to Politico. And what is clear is that the French were trying to push for some sort of a, a negotiation. What I understood from exploratory talks that have resumed between the Greeks and the Turks is that they are talks. And these talks are supposed to lay the ground for a negotiation at some point. And I think this is typically the the direction that the French were hoping that this would take. They keep saying that there needs to be a solid European position. There is now um, European unity on, on the Greek issue, and I think this is, on the French side, quite a welcome development. What they've been saying for a while now is that each time Erdogan has acted in the region, there's been zero pushback by Europeans, and actually on Greece, there has been finally a pushback. So that this might help, and this might help de-escalate. If you look at the readout published by the Elysee of the Macron-Erdogan talk yesterday, it was one hour long talk. They discussed the situation in the Eastern Mediterranean. They discussed Libya and Syria. Macron insisted that he welcomed these exploratory talks between Greece and Turkey. And he called for the same uh, with Cyprus, by the way. And he said that he was attached to a, a, a solid EU-Turkey relationship. So I think we are hoping that we're moving in... In the, in the right direction, I would say. And how does France see this relating to other relationships within Europe? There's been quite a lot of Franco-German tension around this. Absolutely. I think there was the French were also dismayed initially both by the EU and Berlin's reaction, which tried to portray itself. I mean, both the EU and Germany, they tried to portray themselves as honest brokers, as mediators in these rising tensions. And Paris kept saying that they don't understand how European institutions and a European member state 
should mediate in a conflict between another European Union member state and, and a member state and a state, a nation state that was exterior to the EU. And the fact that it was not European solidarity that, that was the prime decision, decisional factor in, in Germany's thinking was a bit of a, left the French a bit perplexed here. And they kept saying, we shouldn't put Athens, sorry, and Ankara on the same footing. It doesn't make sense. I mean, if, if it's Berlin presiding, uh, the presidency of the Council of the EU, then clearly Berlin needs to be in favor of the EU member state and should demonstrate that they are more in favor of uh, the European Union member state and demonstrate this European solidarity. I think once again, we've come quite a long way. I mean, it's true that the, the French and the German position were quite far away at the beginning of the summer. But this is one of the topics that Merkel and Macron talked about when she came to Brégançon in the south of France at the end of August, and they clearly they coordinated. I'm not so sure about this good cop, bad cop act that a lot of people are talking about when <laughs> when German diplomats came to me in August, they really didn't understand the French position and, and the French diplomats were not too sure about the German position. But I think since the coordination between Macron and Merkel at the end of August, both countries kind of changed their, their tactics. And I agree with us. I think Merkel has been quite instrumental in, in helping direct those talks and, and de-escalate quite a lot. So, Aston, what do you think the solution is going to be to this? How How is it going to play out over the next few weeks? Well, one thing that I noticed about Cullen's talk uh, with us was he was very conciliatory towards Greece and particularly Mitsotakis. He wasn't, so, he wasn't conciliatory at all when it came to Macron. But I think that tone, that difference in tone, was clearly an indication that the, that talks would start. I agree with Lucas that there's a very toxic language on both sides. Here in Turkey, we're used to it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, these two nation states have defined their uh, national struggles as, as a negation of each other. So it's not very difficult at a time of crisis. It's not very difficult to trigger that sentiment. But there needs to be a toning down, particularly at the leadership level. You know, you watch here in Turkey discussion, endless hours of discussions by experts who talk about some map that a Greek website published or sort of a Seville map that a, a university published, all of them showing Greek designs that, that want to hem in Turkey. We won't be able to sail a ship. They want the entire Eastern Med- Mediterranean. They want the in, in, entire, you know, Aegean as a Greek island, etc. The, the sort of Turkey image outside of a threatening assertive power as a opposed to what you listen to here, uh, a country that really fears being hemmed in, suffering from lone wolfism, you know, we can't, we won't be able to sail a ship, they are all lined up against us, etc. That is something that requires a bit of uh, understanding on, on an analytical level, purely, I don't mean on an emotionally. But in terms of practical steps, Again, I agree with with you, Lucas. Uh, Cyprus is important. For a number of months now, EU mediation efforts had the premise that, okay, Cyprus is way too difficult. Let's just not open Pandora's box in terms of resolution of the conflict. Let's just focus on getting Greeks and Turks to talk. And I understand the practical need for that. But at the end of the day, East Med is all about maritime borders, you know, zones, exploration, your ship can drill here. And sooner or later, it would come to Cyprus. It is not impossible 
to start a dialogue again on Cyprus. It's tough and everybody's tired. This conflict has been running for half a century. But at some point, Cypriots, and I mean Cypriots on both sides, have to decide, do they want a one-state solution or do they want a new formula? Because the present situation, the status quo, will only breed conflict, I think. So Cyprus at some point, I think the UN is increasingly more interested. And and also NATO's role will be very important. There is talk of Brussels appointing a special envoy. I think that would be valuable, important. A special envoy that can also pull in aspects of Libyan conflict and Turkey's sort of troubled relations with Israel and Egypt, because they're all part and parcel of this equation. And finally, you know, it's too big an ask, but at some point we need to start thinking of the future of Europe's relationship with Turkey. We all know that there's an accession process that's more or less bankrupt, in a coma, whatever we, whatever metaphor we use, it's no longer working. But Europe and Turkey need a partnership, a real deep, multifaceted partnership. It's time to start also thinking about the structure of that. We need a structured relationship between these two powers. So these are some thoughts in terms of prescriptive way forward. Do you agree, Lucas? I do. I do with most of the things that Ashley has just said. I first of all agree that resolution of the Cyprus problem should be a top priority. As long as this remains unresolved, it's going to be a wound festering and affecting relations in the wider region. I also agree with her about Turkey's European future. I've been one of those who have been uh, strongly supported of Turkey's European perspective. And so I think, or I think I believe, were Greek governments in the beginning. Because the long-term interest of Greece is to have a democratic, prosperous neighbor that operates on the basis of European values. Nothing better and nothing safer than having Turkey as part of the European family. Things have gone wrong, as we know. I would say that it is not entirely, to put it very mildly, entirely the fault of Europe, right? I mean, internal developments in Turkey have changed the European course of Turkey. I would be delighted if there was an attempt from Ankara to get back on course, but that also implied changes in the domestic political scene, I would guess, in Turkey. And I, myself, as a non-Turk, I cannot pronounce on what our neighbors want to do with their life. But democracy, human rights, respect for minorities and so on are part of the European destination. And I very much hope that Turkey gets back on that road. So I agree with us. But this is more a wish than observation of facts. Yes, Cyprus is important. Wish the European Union should take responsibility and should take initiatives to deal with the problem. And we should also all think about the future of Turkey's relation with the European Union. It's in the interest of all sides concerned. So maybe end with you, Tara. How do you see 
European foreign policy emerging out of this? Is this a kind of peculiar situation which has been around for, for ages? Or do you think there's some bigger lessons to draw from how this has exploded onto the European scene and, and how we can get out of it for European foreign policy more widely? I think it's both. <laughs> it's been there for a while and I hope that it will get better. There is certainly an issue for Europeans to be able to solve this together, both with the high representative Burrell, but also, I guess, in a NATO format too, because that, that is quite important. It is going to be a credibility issue for the Europeans. And what we've seen in, in our studies at ECFR that are directly linked to the EU-Turkey relationship is that actually European citizens care about the EU having a better foreign policy in its immediate neighborhood. And I think <laughs> Turkey gets, you know, Turkey enters in, in, into that sphere completely. So we need to, to make things better with Turkey. I fully agree with what both Asla and Lucas just said. We need to be able to solve this and to think about the future of our relationship with Turkey because Turkey is not going away and we are not going away either. Maybe Pax Mediterranea is one way towards it. The energy issue and the political governance issue are absolutely crucial here. Maybe they're not the only ones. If France wants to lead the way, that could be an option. I'm not sure that that would totally work with all of the Europeans and with Turkey too, but there certainly needs to be a sense of initiative that would ideally be brought by HRVP Borel. I think that that would be the best way forward. Well, we will definitely carry on working on these topics. We have had an ambitious series called our Deep Sea Rivals Project, unpacking all of the issues which have been exposed around the Eastern Mediterranean. We'll put up links to the publications that we've done on it so far, and I'm sure we will be doing more podcasts on this as the situation develops. But there's one thing left to do on the podcast this week, and that's our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Asla? I don't know if other people have had similar experiences, but the pandemic has been a blessing in disguise for me in terms of getting back to reading novels, which I had not been doing for a number of years. I was reading a lot of books, but it was mainly nonfiction. And so now I, I continue on with novels. Right now I have a book that I suspect many of your listeners have already read, My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante. It's a Neapolitan novel, friendship between two young women in Naples in, in 50s and 60s, beautifully written. Great. What about you, Lucas? What's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, I'm afraid because I'm writing yet another book on Europe's choices. I'm reading lots about the economic management of the pandemic, about the reform of the euro, but also about foreign policy choices. I will not burden you with all that. One thing that I would recommend for reading is a piece that MDMAP has just uploaded. This is a piece by Marc Pierini, the former EU ambassador to Ankara, who wrote a very interesting piece on Turkey's labyrinthine relationship with Europe. That's how he titles it, labyrinthine relationship, which I think is a very good, solid piece. Fantastic. And what, what about you, Tara? A quick note to Asla, if you liked my brilliant friend, I recommend that you read Elena Ferrante's latest book, The Lying Life of Adults. I really like that one. What I just read and found quite amazing is a piece in The New Yorker by journalist Jiayong Fan 
called How My Mother and I Became Chinese Propaganda. And she explains how she was targeted on social media by telling the story of her mother, who is quite ill and, and was quite ill during the COVID and how she described the American health system and their history of how they came uh, as Chinese immigrants to America. And, and I thought that was quite fascinating and, and very touching. Great. And I've been reading a book called Necropolitics by Akile Mbembe which is an attempt to make sense of sovereignty, democracy, migration, war in the contemporary world, and looks at everything through a, a kind of strong post-colonial mindset. We will put links up to all of those publications on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do let other people know about it by tweeting about it, writing about it on your Facebook page or ours. But above all, by going to whatever platform you've used to download this podcast and giving us a positive review and hopefully a five-star rating. But for now, from Asla Adim Tashbash, Tara Varma, and Lucas Sukalis, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this week's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor is Marlene Rivi. Bye.